Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. Welcome. Uh, interesting times, certainly for IP, very interesting for patents, and very interesting for what you're doing uh, or will be doing. Um, now, I see your full name is Kathleen McDonald O'Malley, so you're basically Italian heritage? <laughs> yeah, about as Irish as you can get. Uh, and where were you born? I was actually born in Philadelphia, uh, but I grew up most of my life in, in Cleveland. We went from Philadelphia to Cincinnati, but I was in Cleveland, you know, long before I was in kindergarten. And I, uh, from what I hear, Cleveland is a very nice place and a good place to live. I love it. I, I still miss it. Um, but so, so why aren't you there? Well, a couple of reasons. The federal circuit is in D.C. and it just so happened that I was married to a guy who lived in D.C. So it worked out very well. Um, but I was there in Cleveland on the federal bench for 16 years, the district court bench for 16 years before I came uh, to the, the Court of Appeals. OK, so. Where'd you go to school? So how far back do you want to go? But um, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school called Regina High School that doesn't exist anymore, sadly. It finally closed its doors. Um, but then I went to Kenyon College. And after that, I went to Case Western Reserve Law School. I know uh, that you were uh, summa cum laude from uh, Case Western Law School. Uh, at Kenyon, you had a double Bachelor of Arts, History and Economics. How do you do that? How do you get a double major? <laughs> you have to be insane, I guess. But uh, the, the true story is that my father wanted me to be an economics major because he thought something like history was useless. And I loved history and wanted to do the history program and the history honors program. So the only way I could satisfy both of us was to do a double major. So I did. And I'm glad I did the economics thing too. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> but um, that's why I did it. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually grew up in love with history, so uh, we share that. Um, okay. Um, then you, uh, let's see, uh, law school. Summa cum laude, which is fantastic. Um, you're on Law Review, which, of course, you would be. And you're a member of the National Mock Trial Team. And what did you do on that? That was, uh, it was, we were the first ever mock trial team. And, and actually, I was the president of it that, that year. Uh, but Jim McElhaney, who you may have oh, heard oh, of. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. We know you're exceptional in everything else, but we don't have to include every single president and other things. <laughs> in here okay i just assumed well i was just it was just one of those things where one more thing that i had to throw on my plate was was that because jim mcelhaney talked me into doing it but jim mcelhaney who was really well known he he was really the the, the person who was the driving force behind nita uh the national uh, trial advocacy program and he he uh, had he wrote several articles on um, in, in a magazine that Nita put out. And he decided, and he decided that 
lawyers didn't really know how to try cases and he was going to do everything he can to make sure that that happened. So he taught uh, what he called evidence for litigators. And it was a three credit course, but you had to meet five days a week at, at 8 a.m. Uh, and he, he actually taught evidence with you acting it out uh, th through the, the course of a, a cross-examination or a direct examination. He then taught a course called uh, trial, a trial advocacy course where you actually you know, did trial advocacy work. And then he did an advanced trial advocacy course where you, you, it was co-taught with a, uh, somebody from the acting school over at Case. So uh, I took all of his classes and then we started this mock trial team. So I was uh, one of the participants. We made it to the, to the uh, finals. We made it past the regionals, but we did not win. My teammate and I did not win. Um, uh, some Southern Texas lawyers that were judging actually told us afterward it was because I wasn't being feminine enough because I wore my Brooks Brothers suit. That was the era of Brooks Brothers suits. And, and uh, my partner got very angry and yelled at the guys, but it, whatever. <laughs> it is what it is. I'm, I'm amazed that he admitted to that. But that shows how confident they were with their prejudices. Um, yeah. Well, it was a long time ago. I don't think anyone could get away with that today. But um, that's yeah. what they said. They said the other guys, even though they weren't technically as good as we were, they were more charming. So, uh, oh, God. Yeah, that's all right. All right. Um, well, as a judge in a district court, how much char did charming ever affect you at all? <laughs> I actually think that in some ways it was a good lesson, not the part about being more feminine, but but you have to charm the jury when you're a trial lawyer. And and um, so I worked harder at that uh, when I was trying cases. Um, I, st I still wanted to be technically good, according to everything Jim McElhaney taught us. But I I realized that that you had to let your personality through. Um, and so that helped. I also think that, you know, as a trial judge, there are ways to to run a courtroom and and there are better ways to run a courtroom. And I, I think that uh, you get sort of more flies with with honey than than you do with being uh, too hardcore as a trial judge. Um, I don't think it matters as much at the Court of Appeals, except to the extent that you're trying to charm your colleagues into agreeing with you on something. Yeah, I've noticed that often a court of appeals arguments are really aimed at or a Supreme Court at the other people, the other judges, uh, rather than actually uh, the audience or the uh, advocates. Exactly. Uh, so let's go. You started out law clerk. I mean, we have this, you know, uh, it's, you know, I was a history major, this or this. I did this trial advocacy. I was on a first trial advocacy uh, team at, at Georgetown. In fact, it was crazy. They decided it, you know, after the thing started and it was five credits and I dropped courses to be able to take the trial advocacy. You normally they could just do prospectively, but there. And one semester I was basically a defense attorney in misdemeanor criminal cases. And the other semester, uh, a prosecutor in misdemeanors. Um, it's an incredible experience, and uh, it is. 
um, all those things. And of course, I, I also loved um, trying cases, which you probably did. Did you like I, did. I absolutely loved it. That was, that was in some ways the hardest thing being on the bench is that for the first several years, I would get off the bench and I would tell my law clerks, this is how they should have done that. This is how that examination should have gone. This would have been a better way to do it. And I finally got over the desire to be in the well, but it took me a while. Yeah. Um, now, I have other, we still have some of your background, but jury, non-jury trial as a district court judge, which did you prefer? Uh, it depended on the subject area with, with particularly complex cases. Uh, I sometimes wished they would waive a jury, but uh, I have to tell you, you, knowing that you have the backdrop of a jury really helps uh, for several reasons. One is it's their decision and all you have to do is find any way to support that decision, number one. Number two, when the trial's over, the trial's over. You know, you're certainly going to get post-trial motions, but but you don't have to write findings of fact and conclusions of law. So, um, but I loved interacting with the jurors. I loved learning from them. I talked to them afterward all the time about their experiences, answered questions they had. Uh, uniformly, they would tell me they didn't want to do it before they started, but they were glad they did it by the time it was over. So. I'd say I preferred jury trials and, and I have more faith in juries than I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people do. Yeah, I think actually one of the stupid things about lawyers, uh, my experience in running in, I also loved the jury, uh, but some lawyers, they're litigators and they love pretrial, they love this, they love depositions, they love all that stuff but they don't want to try the case. Now, one reason might be there's an up or down, even if they're the best trial lawyer in the world, they could lose the case and the rest of the world just remembers Hanson lost it. So maybe that has part of it, but they would say, jury's a black box and I don't know what they're doing and everything else. So, but no, they're just human beings. And you are, in my view, you argue policy to them and explain it to them and this and that. Uh, they don't even get the law until the, what, the last, morning or afternoon of the thing right. so they're making even though you tell them not to make up their minds they are so all you have to do is is how do you deal with people in in this situation and uh um so i think actually uh the advantage of a jury is often the judge you've had fifteen thousand of these cases as soon as it comes in oh my god this is this i know what i'm gonna do you can't almost not think that because it's you've done so many, Whereas it, and that could be bad for you if you're on the other side. But the jury at least has a clean slate, and you could you could uh, in fact anyway. It's interesting. Um, and the rest of the world think the jury thing jury thing is crazy in civil cases. Yeah, my colleagues from from other countries, especially in in, in England and and uh, other countries that don't have juries at all, except in extreme cases, uh, think we're nuts. But I gave a speech to, um, it was an AIPLA program, and I, I gave a speech on the importance of maintaining the jury trial uh, and, and why you can trust jurors to do complex cases. In fact, what I said was, it, it, it's really up to the judge and the lawyers to 
to educate the jurors. And it, to the extent that jurors, they, they think jurors are not doing a good job, it's because the lawyers and the judges are not doing a good job of, of making sure jurors know what they're supposed to do and what the parameters of their decision-making is and explain the science to them. Uh, don't blame it on the jurors, blame it on, blame it on those who are participating in the process. Okay. Um, well, I'll continue with the district court. I clerked in uh, Southern District and Second Circuit, and both judges said, well, one actually went up to the Second Circuit, the other said he wouldn't, because they enjoyed or thought is more of a lawyer doing that and whatever. Um, did you feel between the district court and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, do you, did you have more fun in the district court than the Federal Circuit or would you rather, what? Yeah, the, if I could have only done one, it would have been the district court, but there are things in the district court that that are draining and exhausting and and troubling um, that you that you can step away from at the at the circuit court level. So I loved interacting with the jurors. I loved interacting with the lawyers. I got to know you know I didn't really know the criminal bar very well uh, when I got on the bench, but I got to know them very well. Got to really appreciate their approach and their concerns. Um, I love the fact that you never knew what your day was going to look like when you walked in, because who knew if you're going to get, you know, an emergency motion or a wiretap request or, a, you know, somebody would be arrested, a felony, a fugitive would be arrested. So it was life was, you know, always popping and it was always active at the district court level. Um, but, you know, I got pretty tired of sentencing especially young men and most often young uh, African-American men to long prison terms because of drugs. And because I came on when the guidelines were mandatory when I first came on. Um, those, putting anybody in prison is a very difficult thing. And in the federal system, they're almost always long sentences. So those, that was difficult for me. Um, I, I did, was not happy about the guidelines. Um, by the time I left, they. You know, Apprendi had come out and the Supreme Court said they were not mandatory. But up until then, everybody had said they were mandatory, including the Sixth Circuit. Well, you know so, how the, the guidelines were is that, like the New York, the Southern District with less sentences than Utah for the same crime. And people just thought on some level, this is not the way the system should be. It shouldn't be depending on where you are. And they came up with those. Uh, but they had to make them long enough to say that we're not, this is not a way to let people off or something like that. But what happened in the Southern District was they're so long that they got more pleas than before. So to get a trial as an AUSA in the Southern District is much more difficult than it used to be because the prospect of that long sentence, even some people who were innocent but might get convicted, right. So they, they, they plead out, which is unfortunate because I think the trial experience is what is really of value as an assistant U.S. attorney. Um, anyway, um, okay, so I had a question and it's popped out of my mind. Uh, well, you were asking me to compare the two jobs. I, yeah. 
I, I think that, as I said, if I could only have picked one, I would want the experience of being a district court judge. But given my length of tenure on the bench, I think that that I might have uh, gotten stale a little bit, uh, which is which is not good. So for me, I think that it was wonderful for me to have the opportunity to, to shift when I did shift. And and I've loved the opportunity to have more in-depth thought process to to write more. I mean, I used to write, but I would have to write so fast. Uh, it it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as rewarding. And so I really enjoyed the and the the, the breadth of the issues at at the circuit level has has been uh, more constitutional questions, administrative law questions. Uh, a lot of things that you might not anticipate from the federal circuit. So I've liked both jobs um, and and I'm glad I got to have both. Yeah. And I must say that I'm a big fan of your opinions in the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. But we'll, we'll get to that uh, in our third hour. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Do you think District Court Cleveland, District Court, Wyoming, District Court, Southern District of New York. Is it at all a different experience or are they the same experiences for all three? Again, I think it depends on the topic area. I, I think that even after the guidelines, there was there were a lot of studies that showed it depended on how the, the U.S. attorneys were charging cases as to what guideline range would, would apply. I think that in the Northern District of Ohio, the US attorneys were, were more harsh than they were in the Southern District of New York. So they would just you know charge a case with one count, whereas Northern District of Ohio would find everything they could put in and then it would, it would adjust the guidelines up. I don't know that that was purposeful to try to get the adjust, guidelines adjusted up. I just think that they had a, the U.S. attorneys had a different approach to charging. Right. Um, so I think in the criminal side, almost everybody will tell you that it's different. Um, and I think that that uh, I've talked to a lot of criminal defense attorneys who think that, you know, some jurisdictions are just more harsh than others. Um, on the civil side, I don't I doubt there's much difference. Um, some judges have more experience with with complex cases than others, but I think some, sometimes it's those with less experience that, that try harder to get it right um, and don't assume that they know anything. So I, I think it's pretty uniform on the civil side, I would, I would guess. Okay. All right. Um, clerking, Judge Jones, um, how did that come about? Um, interestingly, I was applying for clerkships and my, um, my labor law teacher said that he knew this judge who was new to the bench, Nate Jones, and he knew him from the Boston uh, busing cases. They had worked together when Nate was at the NAACP. Um, and Roger just thought that Judge Jones, uh, or then Nathaniel Jones was one of the, the, uh, classiest, smartest gentleman he'd ever met. And he begged me to apply to him. So I applied to Nate and I also applied to uh, judges in the second circuit. Um, I got 
three interviews, but the first one was from Nate. And then I, when I spoke to Roger, he said, oh, if you go down and he gives you that offer, you just cancel the other interviews because I can't tell you how much you will, you will love clerking for him. So I did. And, and so I, I did that. I went down, got the offer, um, clerked for him. It, I was his second round of clerks and I canceled the others. And, and uh, uh, the other judges were very gracious when I told them why. And they said, well, that's right. You got to go with your first offer. But um, it was the best thing I ever did. They became not just a mentor, but a, a very close friend. Uh, and uh, we just lost him at the beginning of COVID, which was so sad. But um, he he was a giant um, in the it, not just in the civil rights movement, but uh, of a man, I think. And um, I, I don't I don't believe I'd be where I am today if it wasn't for Nate Jones. Wow. Now, after you left him, what did you call him? Oh, I still called him Judge. Um, I think it was much later when he was around 80 when he told me to call him Nate, but <laughs> it, it was hard to do that because um, I just always thought of him not just as the judge, but as former law clerks, you know, we refer to him as my judge. So I, so I always called him Judge just because I thought he deserved that respect forever. Yeah. Um, so what are your clerks? Oh, yeah. The clerks call me judge generally, or sometimes Judge Kate. Um, at the district court level, judge Kate, Judge Kate. That's a little yeah. informal, isn't it, Judge Kate? Well, that's how I sign my cards to them and things. Um, the at the district court level, um, they would sometimes call me um, uh, KMO. For Kathleen McDonald O'Malley, just call me KMO. And um, but then I went to the Court of Appeals and they and I couldn't use KM because Kimberly Moore was already there, so they just called me KO, and that wasn't as fun. <laughs> That's like a knockout or something. So um, they either call me judge or they call me KMO. All right. So do you you know when I was clerking, there was usually a dinner once a year for all the clerks and the judge to get together. Do you do that with either court? With your um, we have we have not done that. I at the district court, I always took all the current clerks out uh, at the end of each six month report uh, period. But um, we have not done that. We've had reunions, so every five years, I've had reunions for all the clerks. Um, but the problem is my clerks are scattered all over the place now. So it's kind of hard to bring everybody in. Um, but I, I did my portrait ceremony and 25th reunion together so that I didn't have to drag them all in twice. Um, and then we had the 20th, the 15th, the 10th, the 5th. So every five years. Okay, that's good. Um, so, Judge clerk, it's a mentoring thing, but it's almost also like a paternal maternal thing to some extent, um, looking after for them and everything else. I think it's great. And I, for people, you know, I always advocate if you can get a clerkship, especially federal clerkship, um, well, maybe the others are just as good, but uh, that's what I know. Okay. Um, Jones Day. Yes, and then 
Porter Wright, Morrison, Arthur. What were you doing there? Well, the 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 funny story about Jones Day is I went to Jones Day um, off my clerkship, but I really wanted to to try cases because I my dream had been to be a judge, and I thought the way to do that is to become known as a trial lawyer and then run for state court judge, and then eventually maybe you could be promoted or moved on to the federal bench. Um, but when I went to Jones Day, to my surprise, they put me in the patent litigation group. I got to do a little bit of other stuff, but it was I, it, it more and more and more, I got sucked into the patent group. And I, I kept saying, why am I here? I don't have a science background. And uh, Hal Cooper, who was the partner at Jones Day said, well, that's why you're here because we've got the science but we need somebody who understands the brief writing process and who's a good writer and we'll just plug in the science. So we were doing a lot of Lubrizol Exxon cases and he said, just write it. If, if you don't remember the formulas, just write it as gunk and gunk plus one and gunk plus two and we'll put the formulas in for you. Um, so I did that for, but I was like the fifth person down on these massive pleadings and I was going all over the country, not trying anything in Cleveland, Ohio and finally, I, I begged the head of litigation to let me do something else and, and to try other cases. And he said, look, this, this new push for patent litigation in big firms is so unusual and it's making us so much money that you have to stay in that group because if this guy wants you, he's got you. So finally I left. And when they said, why are you leaving? And I kid you not, I said, because I wanna be a federal judge someday and this patent stuff is never gonna get me there. <laughs> and the irony of that statement has, has been brought back to me several times by my friends at Jones Day and by the, my former mentor there. Um, but so I left and I went to Porter Wright, which was a big firm out of Columbus, but it was opening a small office and in that small office, we did everything that came through the door as we were trying to build our practice. And I got to try a lot of cases. Um, and I, so I finally got an opportunity to be a, a trial lawyer. Um, and I did a lot of work with the Columbus office. So I could, you know, whenever any of them had the trial up in Cleveland, I would, I would volunteer to be on their trial team. Um, and it was really, it was a great experience for me. Um, and little did I know that, that, you know, I would roll back to patent law later. So in terms of litigation, in terms of uh, the most interest, interesting litigations and stuff, would patents be the least interesting because they're so focused on the science as opposed to the other, at least the way patent attorneys sometimes try that and get criticized for because it focuses right. too much on the science, uh, as opposed to other areas of the law? I think it depends. I think some of the other areas of law are fabulous too. Um, and But there's a lot of science in other areas of law. I mean, it, it, you know, I did a multi-district litigation mass tort and there was, it was all about the science of the brain and, and bioavailability with respect to, you know, toxins. So I think that um, it, patent litigation is not the only place where there's science. And the best trial lawyers that are patent litigators are the ones that can make the science fun and understandable and, and tell a good story about the invention. Um, so I, I had fun trying other cases. Products liability cases were kind of fun to try. 
Um, I tried uh, some complex, you know, other complex litigations. I did, I did some accounting malpractice that was really fun. Um, and, but I don't think that patent cases are necessarily less fun. Um, they're less fun to listen to if the lawyers are good at it. Okay. All right. Chief counsel to the Ohio Attorney General. What's that all about? How to, is that on your road to be a judge? Is that why you did that? Um, yeah. The, I ended up I ended up being asked when I was at Porter Wright to work on um, an election challenge. Um, they, I knew what dangling chads were long before Bush versus Gore. Uh, the attorney general in Ohio had been elected by 1,234 votes. It's easy to remember because it's one, two, three, four. And there was an election challenge to that because you know there were 6 million voters in Ohio. And um, so, my firm was hired to represent him, Porter Wright was, and one of the partners uh, took it on. And I went to him and said, this looks like it's gonna be overwhelming for you. I said, do you want me to take on the rest of your docket and keep the rest of your docket up to speed while, cause I was just making partner at, while you're doing this. And he said, no, I want you to be my associate on this case. And he said, I know you're pretty senior, but I need someone to do all the writing and to supervise putting all the data together. So I ended up working on that matter. Uh, we we won. It, it's a direct action in the U.S. in the Ohio Supreme Court. We won in the Ohio Supreme Court, and that Attorney General then asked me to become his chief counsel. And I turned him down at first because I was just about to make partner at my law firm. I had a, a great nanny. I had a great house. I thought I was getting entrenched in my life in Cleveland, and it was Nate Jones who called me and said are you out of your mind? You want to be a federal judge? This is the way to do it. You need to get the public interest experience. You need to have, you know, um, interactions with politicians and you have to take this job. So at the time it was good for my husband because his firm also was a Columbus based firm. So we moved the family down to Columbus and I went to work for Lee. Um, I was the chief counsel, which meant I supervised all 350 lawyers in the in the office. And and part of the agreement was I would get to try some of the more sensitive cases. Um, and I did that until the chief of staff went to work for the newly elected Bill Clinton. And actually, he worked for the DNC, headed up the DNC. And oh, so that pardon. Don't use acronyms. A lot of people are not going to know. Uh, oh, the Democratic, Democratic National, National Committee. Committee. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry about that. And then, um, so then Lee, the Attorney General, asked me to become his chief of staff and first assistant, which then meant I was supervising the entire office of like 1,200 people, including all the law enforcement people and the legislative affairs, everything. So, and it was in those roles that I got to know people that were very helpful when it came time for me to apply for a judgeship. So how do you apply for a judgeship? You, you really just apply. You just, you, um, I know a lot of people sit and think, oh, people are going to recognize how smart I am and they're going to come and offer me something, but they don't. You have to put in, uh, and at, at the district court level, you, you put your, you, you submit your interest to the senators. Um, and you do everything you can to get as much support from people that that who have the senator's ear. 
Um, and you just really hope that you're going to stand out from the pack some way. Um, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, today, most senators use committees or commissions to, to make recommendations. Um, back then, they didn't really do that. It was, it was pretty much a pure senatorial prerogative. And I had Senators Metzabom and Glenn, who were both Democrats, though they didn't see eye to eye. So I had to appeal to both of them. And ultimately, I, um, I managed to get the seat. Yeah. Uh, so how did we uh, get into this highfalutin place you are right now? Well, the first thing that happened was that um, when I took the bench in the Northern District of Ohio, every judge that, that created a docket for me by every judge transferring cases to me. And there were no limits on what could be transferred, how many types of cases could be transferred at the time. So I got, I kid you not, every single patent case in the Northern District of Ohio, every single one. Um, and then as soon as I got on the bench, the court changed the rules and said, you can't transfer a case that's already been transferred uh, once. You can't transfer a case that's more than two years old. And so they changed all those rules, but I inherited a whole pack of patent cases, including some that were very old that I needed to move through. Um, so I had to roll up my sleeves and get back into the patent world um, I even decided if I had to learn it so much, I would start teaching it. So I started teaching it at Case. And then I somehow got on the, you know, the conference circuit doing programs. So I got known as a judge who wasn't afraid of patent cases and who was thoughtful about how they were being handled. Um, so the bar pushed hard for a district court judge to be on the uh, Court of Appeals, the, the federal circuit, because there had never been a district court judge on the federal circuit. And so there was a big push, for, not for me in particular, but for a district judge generally. Um, so that narrowed the pool of competition for me, if that's where the White House was inclined to go. And then I, it also narrowed the pool of competition because you had to be willing to move to DC because we have a rule that says you have to live within a 50 mile radius of the court. And, um, and, you know, I went, I, I, you have to apply for that too. And you have to do everything you can to, to get the White House to pay attention to you. Um, so with a lot of help from a lot of people, I managed to get a, an interview at the White House. And basically I said to him uh, on the advice of a good friend, I said, look, these other people that you're considering are fabulous, but all things being equal, you could, you could unite a family since my, my husband lives in a different city and we had been commuting for a long time. So, um, so I managed to get the nod. You think that was fair to use that argument? <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't know. It, All right, it's uh, good, it's good now. I'm a trial lawyer. I just so you were a commuter marriage for a while? For a long time, yeah, six years. Yeah. And where were the kids in this communal marriage? Were they so, growing up with them? Yeah, by that point, the, it, actually, the funny part is my daughter was in, in school in D.C. because she went to Georgetown as well. And, um, and, and my son was in college. So during most of it, um, I, I either had the kids and we, did, we commuted more toward Cleveland than the other way. But then once the, the kids were both 
gone, then I would come to DC more, more often on the weekends. Where are they now, your kids? So um, between George and I, we actually have four. So George is the oldest one is George's oldest and she lives in Baltimore. She works at, uh, at the Friends School in the Alumni Affairs Department and has a, a great family, a wonderful husband and, a, and our granddaughter, our only granddaughter, that's Christine. The second oldest is my daughter, Nora, who currently is in Cleveland. Um, she was in New York City for quite a while. And I think I told you that she had that fabulous wine bar in New York. Uh, it was called Lois down on the Lower East Side. It was really successful, but it did not survive COVID because it was a small, intimate space. Uh, it was designed so that most of the people were sitting at the bar. Um, and so when you know when you had to open and you had to be 10 feet apart and no one was allowed to sit at the bar and you had to socially distance, it, they just, they couldn't last. Um, so she's back in Cleveland. She's doing some some uh, catering and some writing, um, and she's she's bought bought a home there. Uh, the next oldest is Allie. Allie was in New York too; ha had been living with Nora, so the kids blended well. Um, Allie was at at Coach and Kate Spade in New York. She's now working. She just took a new job at a, a place called Scout, and she's moved back to Baltimore. And then my son Jack is um, well. He was. He was working in the restaurant industry, but has finally gone back to college. So he's in college now, and he and his girlfriend live in Philadelphia. Um, so everybody's doing well, and uh, but nobody's in D.C. Your husband isn't in D.C.? Well, no, he is. George is. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> At least we have that. We can solve that problem. Okay. Yeah. Uh, good. Uh, and what does your husband do? He is a patent litigator. <laughs> I met him on that speaking circuit that I was telling you about. Um, so he's a patent litigator at, at Covington in Berlin and quite a successful patent litigator. That sounds like it, yes. Um, so, all right, let me know. He's one of those guys that knows how to try a patent case without making it boring. Okay. Um, all right, so now you're in a court of appeals for the federal circuit and you got up there and you said, oh man, this is great and everyone's doing great. Or you get up and I said, well, what's going on here? I mean, there's division, there's this, there's this, there's this. Um, I think there's much more division. And of course I'm speaking from the outside, but uh, in the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit than in other, other circuits, at least certainly the Second Circuit when I was clerking there, there was, none of this seemed to be going on. Is that because patents it strikes a chord and people get very strong about it? Or what is going on in a Federal Circuit that you have this division? Well, well, first, I, I think you're right about the Second Circuit. There didn't seem to ever be much division in the Second Circuit. But if you if you look at the Sixth Circuit, for instance, there's a lot of division in the Sixth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit. And so there are other circuits that have have issues. Um, I kiddingly say that the that the uh, that the Federal Circuit is like a family, but like all families, the siblings tend to fight sometimes. <laughs> so um, I mean, everybody's personally very kind to each other. Uh, they've been amazing to me through some cha health challenges that I had. Um, 
but we just don't always agree. And I, I think it's true that, that patent litigation, um, it, it, we understand the importance of it. And, and it, it's one of those things where the bar itself and the stakeholders uh, beat such a loud drum that uh, people start to feel strongly one way or the other about, about certain issues. Um, but we're also pretty divided on veterans issues. We're divided on, on certain um, uh, administrative procedure issues. And, and I, but it's, it's not on political lines at all. It's more on just our philosophies about how to approach the law or how to approach a particular issue or, or, or you know, how we think the law should play out. Um, I mean, you, you saw before Phillips, there was a big battle over whether it's just the claim language or the, um, or you look at the written description as well as the claim language. And, you know, I think it calmed down after Phillips and then, then you had to find another battle. So I, I, yes, you're right. There are battles that are pitched, um, but it's, 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 it's almost never personal, which is what I like. All right, let's say, and then on top of that, you have a Supreme Court who all, all they can do is screw up on things. Uh, so <laughs> now it's interesting about that. I think Breyer got, they denied cert. Breyer had an opinion saying we should have granted cert. And I think so. I think he got that mail, whatever the first case he did, out of almost, okay, all right. Steve, this is yours. And that's why I wrote it like nothing is being changed. We're not overruling anything. And so everyone who doesn't know squat about this is thinking, okay, this is this narrow opinion. But Breyer doesn't know narrow. Breyer is, is very strong in his views. And one of them was not great on IP. You know, his, 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 his tenure piece at Harvard was an uneasy case for copyright. And he said, you don't really need it. Just being the first is enough to get all you need out of that, which of course is ridiculous. Ironically, when trademarks, he's pretty strong on, but patents and copyright, not so. But then that's let loose in the thing and people don't see, well, this is not overruled. And the same thing in your case, he wrote that. No. Don't anyone get you know worried about this thing? It's very narrow and it's just this and it'll never be other than these particular facts, but God knows what's gonna happen. But we could, we'll get to that uh, tomorrow. We're gonna, this is gonna go over to, uh, this is the second of three days we're gonna be doing this. Uh, um, so, let's say people saying this is actually, we can't have a patent system, let's just say that, where nobody knows, even, you know, they don't, you don't tell them even who the panel is now because they're gonna write their briefs or something else specifically to those particular judges. Is that healthy? Oh, I, th I, I do think it's healthy. I mean, I, I, the court tried it as an experiment for a while and they found that, that the, the arguments got to be very distracting because people would come in and say, well, judge, you said X on, in a certain case, or they'd say, well, you joined this in a certain case. Oh, no, I, I'm not saying I agree with that policy. Is it healthy that, that you feel you have to do that? 
there's so much division, you have to do that. I mean, is that is there any way to correct that? He just okay, we're dividing, but let's try at least to find a course we can all agree on or something. But it was it just well, too difficult. I, I think we do try. Um, I think part of the problem with patent law is that the law is constantly changing. Um, and it's not us that's necessarily changing it. I mean, the Supreme Court has thrown a lot of wrenches in the works. Uh, there were a lot of things that we thought were pretty well established and the Supreme Court just blew them up. Um, the AIA, I, uh, you know, I don't think it was supposed to be the sea change that it has become, um, but the Supreme Court uh, believes that, I mean, they bought into that, that troll uh, discussion, which is so ridiculous. Um, and uh, they they basically said anything to get rid of patents is a good thing. Um, I, I don't understand it. And I think you're right. Uh, Justice Breyer, who is a very nice man, but he he just does not believe that the founders had the vision, the correct vision. He does not believe that IP is necessary to innovation. Um, and he and he thinks that getting rid of IP is going to actually enhance innovation. I disagree with him completely, uh, but, but that's, that's his view. Um, I think the IP system needs to be balanced and we can't have abuses, but, but I think that the founders got it right, that Madison understood that, that you need strong intellectual property protection at the, and of course, trademarks were not addressed in the Constitution, but the Constitution wanted to protect uh, inventors and authors. And there was a reason for that. And it worked. I mean, that's why our country was so successful so early. Uh, why we had the Industrial Revolution is because we had patents. Um, and I, I, I just think it's... Um, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's yeah. a little strong. We would have had the Industrial Revolution no matter what because some of that stuff was not patentable and everything else. It was rare well, other things that, and so you could have a big factory and ship all over the United States. So that would still have been the same, but I think you're right. The patent had a, a strong effect on that, uh, the uh, incentive. So, uh, so we, all right, all right, continue. I, I, I sorry I interrupted. No, I just, I'm a strong believer that in the, in the, intellectual property system. Um, and, and I think that every time Congress has looked at it, they've said that while we understand that there's some type of monopoly that comes from uh, intellectual property protection, it's the kind of monopoly we should endure because in the long run, the balance is positive for the country. Um, and I just, we, we keep doing everything we can uh, to chip away at it. And and so that is frustrating. And, and I think that, so I don't think that it's our court who's not conscious of trying to have sort of clear standards. Every time our court has ever tried to do that, the Supreme Court has said, no, we don't like hard and fast rules. We don't, we'd like 10 part tests and, and we, won't, we won't tell you that business method patents are not patentable, but then ultimately, will tell you that it's almost impossible to <laughs> patent a business method patent. So why not just, you know, have the clear line? But um, so it, the Supreme Court, I think, has made life difficult as we try to, to adjust to all the, the sort of 
less clear standards that the Supreme Court wants us to apply. Yeah. Well, I think the, when the Supreme Court tries to get involved, you know, for a long time, they didn't grant cert in any federal circuit thing or anything else. So uh, I think one of the reasons they got involved with two things is a lot of people thought there were bad patents, maybe not in the bar, but uh, one reason is uh, all of a sudden you had things protected by patent and there was no prior art or anything else. And so things were being patented that after a number of years and all one, but anyway, people outside of patent thought there was a lot of bad patents and, but there was, you know, software and never, all these things that were never protected before you're going to hand up and some of that. The, uh, so, uh, I think like eBay, which is a ridiculous decision from, from Thomas, I think what they, so they step in and say, okay, we all know that there's some bad patents. Apparently no one's really trying to correct it or can't correct it. So what we'll do is change the injunction standard. And this is what I think was behind it. And a judge then can say, if it's a good patent, I'll grant an injunction. And if it's a junkie one, they won't. And I think that is what was the motivation for eBay. Otherwise, there's no reason in that, at that point in history for that opinion to exist. Uh, but then, you know, th that was taken, as you know, I mean, they've made it more difficult, uh, much broader than I think the Supreme Court anticipated. Yeah, I have a slightly different theory on eBay. You know, if, if Justice, Chief Justice Roberts has always uh, been skeptical of what he calls specialized courts. Um, now, Federal Circuit is its jurisdiction is is differently established. It's not geographic. It's it's based on subject matter, but that doesn't make us just a specialized court. But I I don't think that the Supreme Court thought of it that way. So so I what was happening at the time, and I, I wasn't there, but I think what was happening at the time is that there was a a real desire to, to have very clear rules for the stakeholders and for the patent bar. And what was happening is that they were making what appeared to be patent specific rules. So they were interpreting the rules of procedure, the rules of evidence, the rules of jurisdiction in a way that, that, that I think the court thought its charge was, which was to have uniform rules for patent cases and I think the Supreme Court was really just saying, no, patent cases are just like every other civil case. Um, they didn't, you know, they, they made you an Article III court, you have to act like an Article III court. And so I don't know that anyone really understood the implications of eBay as I, I think they were just trying to say, use the usual rules. And if you just look at Thomas's opinion, I, I don't think they meant for the pendulum to swing as far as it did. I don't think they meant it at all. So, but that's, you know, the, that, you know, that's the problem with the Supreme Court. They say, okay, this little thing, and then it just goes out there and people, you know, with an agenda or something else can do whatever they want with it. And they don't normally police their decisions because they only hear 80 it used to be Supreme Court have 180, 200 cases a year. Now it's like 84. So they don't have room to police decisions. So just very important cases and case. So they don't go after if someone misbehaves, except now at the federal circuit, was the first time they actually 
were trying to police a little bit, and they even screwed that up. But the um, okay, I think that's that's an interesting point you have there. I hadn't thought of that. Um, and there are very few interesting points that I haven't thought of. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad to get the that input. Uh, all right. So if in fact uh, I don't think Congress can do it because they Congress can do nothing. They can codify case law or they can codify a solution that the industry comes and gives them. But other than that, they can't do anything because if anybody can stand, say, you know, I'm not going to, you know, the unanimous consent to put this on a thing less than two weeks and we will do it in eight days or six days. One person can stop the whole operation, even if the committee was for it and everything. So it's very difficult. Um, but let's say they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take the exclusive jurisdiction uh, in patents away from Court of Appeals. For the, they'll have it if they can get it in, in just a normal way. Uh, so, 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 for instance, from the PTO and stuff. But otherwise, it's going to be spread around the country. What would you say to that? I, yeah, I think it, I think it would be a mistake. I think there is there was a reason that the federal circuit was created. It's that you know you can't have um, invention that is um, valid in one part of the country and not valid in another part of the country. That's infringed in one circuit and not infringed in another. So I think there does have to be uniformity. And I can tell you that after working on um, Oracle Google, I I actually think that uniformity in copyright would also be helpful because when I started looking at, at the Ninth Circuit law versus the other circuits, I mean, the circuits are all over the place on this stuff. So, I mean, it was, there was a reason that they needed more, um, uh, more certainty and that the stakeholders needed more certainty. Um, and, you know, you don't have other countries where you can have, have your, Patent to be valid in one region and not valid in another, and the well, Supreme Court. Really, yeah, I think what they're really worried about is they weren't going to be valid anywhere because you had these non-technical people, and the lawyers explained it to them. And so, if I understand it, it has to be obvious. It can't be non-obvious. So, this patent litigation—it wasn't a lot of it, but it was almost hundred percent. The court found that the patent was non-obvious, and everyone thought this was a problem, even. Uh, you know, Teddy, uh, uh, John's brother, uh, died in the world liberal, was in charge and said, no, we really have to have some. But if in fact we're back to, uh, well, anyway, so you're against it. And uh, I think um, it's not going to happen. So this was more hypothetical. Congress could never get that through. Uh, there'd be too much uh, roadblock in a way. Uh, hold on now. I think the regional circuits are happy not to have it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll let this pass from me. Yeah, uh, whatever. Um, okay, I had... I think. Oh, so your big case, which was wonderful, um, Supreme Court per Breyer, I, I think that opinion is ridiculous. 
Um, what it looked like at first, the one opinion just sort of followed Breyer's words, and, and now we got something in Second Circuit which seemed to say, hey, that was just a pile of crap. We're not going to have to follow it. Uh, what is I your... <laughs> what? I love the Second Circuit decision. Yeah. So what? what's the future hold for this area of the law? Is What can we expect? Is this just going to be a footnote? And for that one fact-specific case? Or is it uh, going no. to be better than that? No, I I mean, Justice Thomas's dissent in that case was fabulous. He was right across the board. And I, I, you know, two things. One is Congress said that, you know, that this kind of code is copyrightable. And by virtue of that decision, they've essentially said it's not, even though they pretended to avoid that issue. Um, and but it's it's having a broader effect. People are arguing all over that that it's a, a sea change in terms of what is fair use. I mean, the fact, it, I was on a panel where people from Europe were arguing, wait, are you saying that if you can give someone a cheaper product or, or, or you can give consumers something they want, that that makes, it, that makes the use fair? Uh, and therefore, you know, you've got a defense to copyright? And that part, I think, is going to be the most difficult part of that case, where he put in a public interest analysis, but not, not the kind we usually think of, the where, you know, that, that, you know, in the patent area, there'd be some uh, medicine that, that nobody could get uh, if there was an injunction. But, but they put a public interest analysis in that said, if the public would prefer uh, that the product that comes out of the back end, then then that is imp yeah, importantly yeah. that's you that weighs in favor of fair use, and I, I that's dangerous, and I think it's going to be an issue in other cases. Well, I hope not. I mean, but he's he, he's he's just what an easy case for copyright. He's putting into law, uh, basically. Uh, okay, so now. Uh, I see in the clock on the wall. Uh, as I said, we want to keep this. Uh, I actually, there are a number of other things, but I think we probably have to keep this within uh, our normal view of, of how long this should be. Uh, is there anything you want to add other than that? This was probably one of the best experiences you've had in your life which goes without saying, so you don't have to say it. Uh, well, I do, I do want to say, because as you alluded to earlier uh, and, and announced that I'm leaving the bench, um, I, I loved being a federal judge. It's what I've always wanted to do. Um, and, and so that's why people are so shocked. But, but the problem is I've done it now. In fact, yesterday, it was 27 years ago, no, on Tuesday, 27 years ago, that I, uh, my commission was signed to the district court. It'll be 27 and a half by the time that I leave. And I just think, I feel like I have another chapter left in me. And, and you know, and I feel like I'd like to get my voice back on some of these issues. And, and so I think that if I leave now, I hopefully can leave the court in good hands and my replacement will be fabulous. And uh, I 
can go on and do something while I'm still young enough to be marketable. Um, and so that's why I'm doing it. It's not because I don't love it. It's not because I don't love my colleagues. It's not because there is such division in the court. There isn't really. Uh, it just the ones that you guys see are, are tend to be a little more vocal. But it's it's because I want I want to move on. But I'm I'm not retiring. I'm repurposing. All right. Now I'm glad you're it. So what are you repurposing to do? What do you think in your future you'll be doing? Well, I can't really do much yet in terms of moving forward on that front because I'm still hearing cases and I'm, I'm still an active judge. So I've got all those restrictions and conflicts and, and ethical limitations. But at least right now, my vision is, a, you know, a portfolio of things, maybe, maybe a board or two, uh, maybe a big board, maybe a, maybe a startup, um, do some consulting, do some you know, uh, moots and mocks and, and uh, arbitration, maybe do some lecturing or, and, and do things outside the patent world too. So a lot of patent stuff, but I, I wouldn't mind getting involved with something like the Innocence Project uh, or, and I also now can, can be on uh, nonprofit boards that we're, that we're limited from being on. Um, so I just, uh, it, I, I, right now I'm wide open and I'm open for, for all suggestions. So if you've got ideas for me, let me know. <laughs> so, uh, I take it you're going to stay in DC. That's the plan, but nowadays it doesn't really seem to matter because you can work from anywhere. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll be in a situation where we're not doing anything remotely. Uh, although I'm happy we were able to do it remotely for this, uh, since we were able to get you with your busy schedule and everything else, you squeezed us in to uh, this time slot, which was very good. Uh, but actually, you know, and it's interesting, this pandemic has made people rethink about what can be done in work and, and where, and maybe that's good. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not happy that there are so many jobs that people are unwilling to take these days, but I, I do think that there have been a lot of, of people who rethinking their future. And maybe that's part of why, you know, I was prompted to do this. I don't, I don't know. I certainly hadn't thought about it before the pandemic. And I assumed I would, you know, I assumed I would stay forever and like Pauli Newman, but um, I, I, I made the decision. I sometimes regret it or wonder if I'm going to regret it. Um, it was a really hard decision to make, but. Uh, you mentioned Polly Newman. I think she's, she's quite remarkable. Oh, Wonderful. Yes. She's incredible. She's incredible. And, and she is a, a role model. So, you know, I would have been tempted. I, I don't think I ever would have taken senior status. Um, just because you can't sit on on banks and you don't ever get to preside, but um, uh, but but I I do think that she's a good uh, a good model to show that as you keep using your mind, uh, it keeps you young. Yeah, I mean, and she's not a spring chicken, as we say in the business, uh, but she's wonderful. Okay, but she still acts like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I I I think I think that's right. Anyway, thank you so much, Kate. Thank uh, you. You're welcome, Keith.
And uh, this has been a lot of fun. And I think there's been a lot of interesting stuff for people listening to this. And uh, I hope, and then you're going to, obviously this means you're going to be speaking at the Fordham Conference in April. I hope so. Yeah, you you darn well better. That's all I can say. Okay. Have uh, you given us the dates? Well, that stuff is, I think it's 2122. Okay. But, uh, and that's going to be, unfortunately, I mean, we, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but it's going to be remote because a number of things like our school won't allow in person right now. And that mm -hmm. can't change that. But also with these variants and everything else, I'm not sure that it would be a good idea. Um, so you can do it from your home. Uh, and uh, all I have to do is think about something I want to speak about. Okay. Uh, it's it's fifty dollars cash. It's not a lot of money. You're gonna be, you're gonna be getting so much money now. You're gonna um, be tripling at least your judge salary. Or, or well, that shouldn't be hard considering how low the judge salary is. But <laughs> <laughs> any case, thanks so much. It's been great. Sure. I really enjoyed it. And uh, don't be a stranger. Let's keep up our contact. Okay. It's good to see you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.